Okay. Hey guys, nice to meet you. If I haven't met you, my name is Alex Sheets. I'm one of the ministers here. Um, yeah, yeah. Love the hype, love the hype. Um, so today, I'm going to be honest with you, today is a difficult and weird text that we're going to be in. Um, there's no way around it, so I'm just going to give you a heads up. I've had three weeks to prepare for this. I've had three weeks to, as Randy said, pray through this, that God would open my mind and heart to it. And yeah, we're in for a ride tonight. Um, if you guys are here for the first time, and I don't know where some of you are, if you are Christian, if you're just visiting a church or a campus ministry for the first time, you picked a great night <laughs> to come. This is, a, this is one of the f- hardest and oddest texts in the New Testament. And honestly, if you guys were raised in the church, um, this was um, a text that for the longest time I had no idea what it says. Um, honestly, we're going we're gonna to get to the difficult portion here in a little bit, um, and there's different interpretations that go on with it, but you could spend your entire life not knowing exactly what Peter says, but that's okay. Um, I think when we come to these, we approach the text with humility, and that's what I hope to do. I still think that even in these confusing sections, there's still some really powerful messages that can be known. I do have a question, though, to open it up, a question for you guys to talk to with your neighbor. Um, What do you want out of life? What do you want out of life? What are some things that you would say, yeah, I'd really like this, I'd really like, I don't know, a house, a car, or whatever. What are some things that you would say that you want out of life? Talk about that for a minute, and then we'll come back and we'll get going. Okay, okay, go ahead and come back to me. Go ahead and come back to me. What do you want out of life? Um, There's a lot of things that could have been said there. Uh, Some people could have said something along the lines of a family, a spouse that loves you, kids, I don't know, whatever that would go in that mushy, gushy, hallmark stuff, you know. Uh, Some people could have said um, a successful career. They want to uh, make a difference. They, they want to make something grow, and they want to make a lot of money, if you know what I'm saying, you know? Um, I want that out of life. Not bad, I guess. Um, another thing that people want out of life is maybe just a, to have a life of service, um, knowing that you made a difference in life. Whatever that is, whatever you want out of life, whatever your vision of that, um, let's call that the good life. Let's call that your version of what it means to be blessed. That's what you consider 
the blessed life as. Peter is going to speak to Christians um, in this text who are trying to live righteous lives. And he is going to talk to them about an idea called blessedness. But they are in the midst of some suffering, some unjust suffering. We've talked about this before. It was actually at the beginning of the um, first Peter. He calls them exiles. People that are going through not necessarily full-scale persecution, but a lot of shame, a lot of hardships. Um, they're trying to live out their faith, but their version of the good life, it's, you can almost see the tension. It's, it's not quite what they thought. He's called husbands and wives to live out faith in some difficult circumstances. He's called slaves to submit to masters, even unjust ones, no matter the cost for the sake of Jesus Christ. And now he's going to call every single person, no matter the circumstances, to embrace unjust suffering for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his main argument. Peter's going to be arguing for this, and there's three sections in this text, and I want to walk through tonight slowly. The first section, he's going to argue for the Christians to live righteously. The second, he's going to argue for them to embrace suffering. And then finally, that third weird paragraph, he's going to be giving us the reason behind all of what he is saying. I know it's going to be very confusing in some spots. Oh, believe me, I know. You guys don't really know yet, but I know. And we'll go slowly through that. But I believe that the main idea is this. To follow God at any cost is the good life. So let's dig in. Peter, 1 Peter 3, verse 8, says this. Finally, all of you, be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but, on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. He mentions the word blessing twice, and this is the Greek word eulogion, where we actually get the word eulogy. And the idea is to speak well of, even in the midst of some hard things, no matter what they say about you, no matter how they treat you, Peter says that you are to speak well of everyone. And he says that they were called for this. Peter uses this word called a lot. He actually just dishes it out. First uh, Peter 1 says that God called you to be holy like God himself is holy. First Peter 2 says that God called you to be priests, to proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And now, 1 Peter 3 says that God called you to speak well of people at all times, no matter how they treat you, no matter how they speak about you. The idea is that you are blessed by God. You are called by God so that you can be a blessing to other people. And then as he says this, it almost triggers an idea in his mind. And he goes to a psalm, Psalm 34, as a proof to the Christians Psalm 34 says this, and in verse 10 goes like this. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. In Peter's mind, Psalm 34 not only applies to them, which I think is really cool, that an ancient text applies to modern people, but is also proof to them as to why they should always speak well of people, no matter how they are treated. It's because, in Peter's mind, that this is who God is. It's who God always has been. It's the, you can see phrases like this, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The ears of the Lord are open to their prayer. That the Lord is with you when you are living righteously, but the face of the Lord is against those who are acting wickedly. The idea, as we've said before, is you were called to be a blessing, not a curse to people. In Christ you are blessed. In Christ you are called to bless everyone. And so the idea of part one is live righteously. And now we move from the idea of blessing, being blessed, and Peter starts to transition to suffering. In the, his second section is embracing the suffering that is at hand for the disciples. We're going to keep moving. Verse 13. Who then will harm you if you are devoted, zealous, to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. But in your hearts, this is such a cool verse, guys. We're going to get into it later. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage slander, your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He's transitioned from the idea of being blessed to embracing suffering. And while we're going to spend, we're going to be kind of brief here, because I want to focus more on the third paragraph, I do want just to catch his main flow of the argument. Um, he begins with a rhetorical question in verse 13. Who will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But then he kind of like doubles back on that. He kind of assumes that they are going to be harmed or that they're going to suffer. He says things like, even if you should suffer, do not fear them or be intimidated. When you are accused, it is better to suffer for doing good. He kind of assumes that they are suffering and assumes that they will suffer for the sake of Christ. But he wants them to embrace the suffering that is at hand regardless. And he wants them to see the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. Instead of rejecting suffering, which I believe is what the cultural idea of Americans would tell us, Peter says something very counterintuitive to them. He actually says it twice. He says it in verse 17. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He said it is better to suffer for doing good, better to suffer. In verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. If you suffer, you are blessed. Like how odd of a phrase that is. 
It's odd for several reasons. One, we're going to actually say for the second half, but two, um, if we were, I can't, I could not remember uh, what you guys, when you turn in your um, papers, you know, and you get like, it checks for plagiarism, whatever the plagiarism checker is, turn it in. Thank you. If Peter turned that in to turn it in, oh my gosh, look at God, um, he would get flagged right now because that's not an original idea. He's not drawing off of, he didn't just, I mean, I, I can just picture him just writing it down, maybe as a, uh, in college, you know, like, oh, where did I hear that from? Okay, and then he could have at least cited his sources right there. If this was a paper, he would get an F shriek, sorry, Peter, we've got to throw it away and, and go out. Because that's not his idea. Verse 14 doesn't come from Peter, it comes from Jesus. Uh, it comes from Matthew 5.10, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who suffer, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He actually switches the Greek right there. He said eulogy on the other two, and now he uses the idea of makarios, this idea that God looks at those who are suffering and he sees favor. He sees that is the good life. Where everyone in life would see to avoid suffering, God looks down and says, this is righteousness. This is what life is supposed to be. We'll come back to that thought in the second half. But for now, his main idea, live righteously, embrace suffering. And now, we move to his third point. Why does it make sense in his head that suffering should be embraced and not avoided? His answer, he will start to move in verse 18. His verse 18 will actually answer this, but before we get into this, I actually want to just... Just take a step back from the text. I want to take a step back from the sermon and say a couple words. This is a difficult text. It has been debated for thousands of years. You could, we can talk about this and every single one of us could come up with a different interpretation of what is going to come. Um, it came up in the Apostles' Creed. Um, I don't even want to give it to you yet, but you can look this up later. The Apostles' Creed that has uh, something that's coming up in here. And um, you will see, if you look up that line in the Apostles' Creed, that this line in the Apostles' Creed is the most debated line in all of church history. The church debates this line. I want to bring in a friend to uh, just give us some sage-like words of wisdom on this text. So let's bring him in. We got our friend Martin Luther here to help us out. And he says this A wonderful text this is, a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certain just what Peter means. Now, hold on a second. This guy was so sure of himself that he nailed 95 theses onto the door of the Catholic Church to tell them that these are the theological problems that I have, and then spent the rest of his life running for his life from the popes of that day. That's how confident this man is. And then he basically just gives us this for his uh, next slide. (laughs) 
That's his interpretation of this text. And so we're just going to approach this with some humility. I do have an interpretation, but I do want us to practice for a little bit. So go ahead and go to the next slide. I want you guys to give it a try. Some of you guys that know what we're about to talk about, some of you guys have no idea. So go ahead and get out your Bibles, get out your Bible apps. We're going to spend about three minutes. Look up verse 18 through 20 and try your best to answer those questions. Okay? Three minutes. Go, there's going to be a lot of echo chambers in here as you're reading the same verse. Just go for it. Then we'll come back.
Okay, go ahead and come back to me, you theologians. You young theologians. Just out of curiosity, who, just by raise of hands, who at their groups had different interpretations from the text? Okay, we have a little bit, a little sprinkling, a little sprinkling, okay. Hands down, hands down. Um, who would feel confident to give their interpretation in front of 200 plus people? And it can't be my friend Trey. Okay, I, I believe in your boldness. I, I love it. I'm not going to ask anyone to do that. Don't worry. I'm scared to do it myself. Um, in reality, one scholar counted up the ways, how many different interpretations there are. And he counted 180 different ways you could take this text. 180 different ways you could answer that. Did Jesus die? And did he go and proclaim to human beings? Was it in those three days that he was in the grave? Was it after he rose from the grave? Was it uh, before Jesus was born? Did he proclaim uh, through Noah? I'm even getting confused as I'm even saying this right now. You know, it's, it's crazy. These are major interpretations that happened. And so, like I said, we're going to walk through this slowly. I believe that you can walk through this text, though. And I believe that ultimately... Um, the things that I'm about to say are my interpretation. And so I am going to humbly do this, and I ask that you would humbly listen, whatever you guys talked about at your groups. Either way, we're going to get a little theologically weird, if I can just say that. And so our safe word is going to be Martin Luther, if it gets too much. So we're going to keep rolling, though. Peter is about to make a comparison between Christians and a story from the Old Testament. And for you to see what Peter is about to talk about, we'll need to actually take a step back into Genesis 6 and 7 and see what's going on then. You see, the background of that story is that God created man, and he created man to have a relationship with him and to fill the earth with glory. This is the Garden of Eden. This is what man was made for, for a relationship and for the glory of God and for their benefit. That's what human beings are. But then sin and death and evil and rebellion entered into the world, and the image of God broke, and we couldn't be whole because we couldn't be upright before God anymore. But God didn't just destroy Mankind, He actually gave grace and he let them continue to live. Um, you can go read Genesis 3 and see how that went. But as the mankind, I guess you could say at this time, experiment to see what would happen I, from our side. I don't, don't want to get like theologically, I'm already getting theologically off right now. Anyway, we're going to keep rolling. <laughs> Stay with me, guys. Um, As mankind went out into all the earth, instead of filling the earth with the glory of God, instead of recreating the Garden of Eden, wherever they went, there was wickedness and there was brokenness that increased. And it increased to such a level. You can read Genesis 3, you can read Genesis 4, like there's people killing each other. There's all kinds of horrible things happen that was not God's original plan. Until it reached such a level in Genesis 6 
that there is this odd story where angels entered into the scene. There's this weird angelic rebellion where angels joined with humanity and this weird like breach of order happened. It was a reversal of everything God intended for humanity and for created order to be. And at that point, at Genesis 6, that is when God said that enough's enough. That evil had reached such a time, such a level, that he actually, as the story goes, regretted his decision to make the world, to make humanity. He's going to send a flood and start all over. And so he sends the flood. But it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and so he built an ark and was spared from the coming flood. That part is in your Bible. That's Genesis 1 through 6, I guess 1 through 7. The next story comes from something that's outside of your Bible, where the people of God, knowing this story, reflected on it for, for the coming years. And it comes from the book of First Enoch. There is a story, tradition, about a man named Enoch who is found in Genesis 5. And Enoch went up to heaven to be with God. And on a tour of heaven, on a tour of the universe, he encounters those Genesis 6 beings, those Genesis 6 uh, angels, demons now, that are held in prison. And they ask Enoch to intercede on behalf of God. Enoch goes to God. They ask him if, he, if they could be released. And Enoch goes to God and asks them if these angelic beings that rebelled in Genesis 6 could be released. And God tells them no, that their wickedness was so great that they will be kept in their chains until the day that their judgment is complete. And so Enoch then goes to those spirits in prison and proclaims to them a message of judgment, that they must wait until the coming day that their judgment is complete. So what, with that in the background, we have Genesis 6 and 7, and then we have this idea, this Jewish tradition that may be helpful. What might Peter be doing as we approach the text? Here's a couple thoughts. One, there is an ancient evil that is real and waiting. I mean, I, I believe in this. Uh, Christianity, we are unashamed. It's kind of weird in the modern age to talk about. But uh, that when humanity is at its worst, we actually don't think humanity is at its worst. We believe that there's spiritual forces of darkness that are behind human beings. Uh, Paul says this, that the fight is not between flesh and blood, but it's between these angels, these powers of darkness that rule the air. Princes of the powers of darkness, whatever that means. You can look it up in Ephesians 6. There is evil, but God restrains some of it now and will judge all of it to come. That's an idea that is in the Bible. A second idea is that in Noah, the righteous are saved by God. But only eight in a whole civilization, only eight believe respond, and listen, and are saved. And three, they are saved through water. It's an odd fact. Destruction comes through the flood, but also salvation comes through the flood too. Because God made a way for those that believed in him. Those could be some ideas that are in the back of the mind. With that in mind, 
Let's turn to part three, Christ's suffering and triumph. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. I want to just pause and remind you, because we were in some weird background stuff there. That is Peter's argument. That is why it all makes sense. That is why the reason to embrace suffering, because Jesus Christ, God Almighty, came down in the flesh and suffered on behalf of human beings that you might be brought to God. That is the atonement in a single verse. Verse, I guess still 18b. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. What is Peter doing in this passage? I believe two things. The first is Peter compares Christians to Noah. We've already kind of said this, so let me go quickly. Peter compares Christians to Noah, the righteous few in his day that are in a world that opposes, is opposed to God. Salvation that comes in some way through water. Now that's a weird phrase, and I want to slow down for a second, because I know there's some background here that people get a little antsy when we say things like that. Uh, Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Like people, Some people are like, whoa, hey, wait, wait a second. And we get our theological finger guns up. Peter, you chill out for a second. You can't say things like that, Peter. So let's slow down for a second and talk about that. Um, He says, baptism, which corresponds to the flood, now saves you. That in some way, salvation is linked with water. That phrase really scares some for for reasons. Um, Maybe it sounds like works righteousness to you, making too much of baptism. Um, Maybe some of you believe in Christ and you haven't been baptized and it's simple anxiety. And you hear things like it now saves you and you're like, oh crap. I need to get baptized. And I would want to encourage you, um, either way, to let's talk through it. Um, But either way, I believe Peter seems to agree initially that the act of baptism is not, how do you say this, um, as big as some of us would want to make it. Um, He begins in verse 18 and says that Jesus' death is what brings us to God. And then he says, after that baptism phrase, that it is through the resurrection that it is what brings us to God. So it's not just the act in itself. Like, it's not the water that's magical. Like, water is not magical. You don't touch it and become different. And if I could just add this, uh, faith is not magical either. You don't just have faith and things change. The reason why both of those have power is because of the one they have power, the one you're believing in. Like Jesus is powerful, and you're believing in him. And in baptism, you are dying to yourself and being risen to life in him. 
So, as much as I can, I want to emphasize baptism. He even says that it's not the washing of dirt from the body as if this ritual by itself was somehow magical. Peter seems to agree. But at the same time, what Peter doesn't do is he doesn't feel the need to split theological hairs that we do today. Um, For one, everyone in that room that he is writing to was baptized. And I think we should just stop and just think about that for a moment. Um, Two, it's the words of Jesus, the first words of the commission that he gives, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And three, he says it in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized. You see, we like to ask questions. Can I be saved? Can a Christian be saved without being baptized? Like walking through this this idea, and I think maybe it's a healthy question to ask, but I don't think Peter would understand the question. I think he would turn it around on us and say, why wouldn't you want to? Don't you understand the significance of what baptism means? So baptism saves because Jesus saves through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and this is made possible because two, second main point that he is trying to get at in this section Peter sees the suffering of Jesus as the answer. Jesus' suffering has caused, verse 18, your vindication. He has brought you to God. And only Jesus could do that. Verse 22, Jesus' suffering has led to his total triumph over over all spiritual powers, over everything. He is the victorious one. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has victory and authority over all evil, suffering, death, today, in the future. And I believe by that phrase of the spirits in prison over all evil in the past as well, Jesus is victorious over all evil, suffering, and shame. There is nothing that could have happened in the past that Jesus is not victorious over. And I hope that you can hear that and believe in it for yourself. That Jesus, in his suffering and resurrection, reigns victorious over all evil and shame, and even yours too. Paul says this in Colossians 2.15 in a different way. He says it like this. When you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Jesus reigns victorious over all evil and shame of all time. So Peter wants you to know that because of Jesus, God is able to redeem whatever trial the Christians face. Whatever suffering the righteous are in, Jesus can redeem it because he went through the suffering first. He says this. We're going to end this first section with this. He summarizes, again, same concept, same odd language in his second letter, 2 Peter 4. Let me read it. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, 
putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but he protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Verse 9, If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment in the day of judgment. If he is able to save them, then he is able to save you. So embrace suffering for the sake of Christ. To follow Christ at any cost is the good life. So Peter says. Let's take a little break and then we'll come back together for that second half. Okay, guys, let us enter back in to the second half. The first half, we walk through 1 Peter and the idea of why Peter believes Christians should embrace suffering. He says, live righteously, embrace suffering, and all of that is made, I guess, redeemed because of what Jesus has done on the cross and in his resurrection. The second half, I want to focus on this really important and I believe powerful set of verses that we had to skip over because there was a lot in that last um, paragraph. And so I want to read over them again and then we'll get started. It goes like this, verse 14, the end of verse 14. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard, revere Christ the Lord as holy. Ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who slander your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Peter is talking about the blessed life. What God sees and says, this is my favor. This is what human beings were made for. And so I want to return to a question I asked at the very beginning. What would you call the good life? What do you want out of life? You want family. Do you want a successful career? Do you want a life of service? All of these things are really good things. And I hope that you get them as you go. I hope that you go and achieve some of these dreams. I believe they're part of having a good life. But if I could ask, what about you suffering? Like, where does that fit in your image of the good life? Where does that fit in your dream? Like, could you even imagine that for a second as we think about, like, what do we want out of life? Like, I want a family, I want a wife with kids, and by the way, I kind of want a lot of suffering to go along with that. Like, that would be strange, you know? You would ask if they're dreaming right. But Peter seems to be arguing for that. Peter seems to see something different and say, you should want that. Instead of the idea of getting as many positive experiences as you can, And shunning the negative, Peter seems to say there is something greater than that. 
there is this idea of blessedness. Verse 3.14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Calling us to embrace suffering just like Jesus Christ. You see, the thing is, Peter isn't just saying things like this. He's not just talking the talk and not walking the walk. I don't know if many of you know this, but Peter, the person writing this to you, he's actually lived a lot of what he's telling people to. He's lived what he's telling you to. Acts 4 and 5. Peter and the disciples begin to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to anyone to everyone that were here, man, they actually looked a lot like Jesus in the way they did. Man, they were bold. They had hope deep within them, and they did not care who heard. They did not care who saw them. In Acts 4, they got arrested and had to stand in front of the Sanhedrin, the same people that arrested and killed Jesus Christ. And when they were questioned about what they were doing, Peter starts proclaiming the gospel to them. He says that Jesus has rose from the dead and that you need to repent, that Jesus can save you, to the people that killed them. And the Sanhedrin says, you need to stop saying this message or we are going to beat you. We're going to whip you publicly. Peter responds with these words, whether it is right for us to obey you or not. To to obey you or God, you decide. But as for us, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen or heard. Cannot stop speaking about the hope that they've seen. And then they were beaten. They were lashed publicly. Suffered shame and pain and public humiliation for the sake of Christ. You and I, we can't even imagine something like this in the American context. Like, can you imagine someone getting beaten publicly for the sake of sharing the gospel with someone? I can't. But instead of them running away, instead of them being ashamed or hiding, they said this, Acts 5.41, that the apostles left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. They rejoiced that they could bear shame for the sake of Jesus Christ. Guys, how on earth do we get to that point? Like, what did Peter see What did the disciples experience that led them to talk like that, that they rejoiced when they were lashed in front of their friends and family because they got to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ? I think Peter saw verse 15. In your heart, regard Christ the Lord as holy ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect. Peter says, in your hearts, hagiotso Christ, sanctify Christ, revere Christ, make Jesus holy to you. Make him holy is what Peter says to the Christians, that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. Make the Lord holy. Do you know what holy means? Holiness is not something that's special or just 
really good. Like there's good and then there's really, really good. Like holiness means set apart. Holiness means divinely other. Is not just the top of the shelf. Holiness means that you have set apart the entire shelf and dedicated it for the Lord. That is what holiness means. Everyone has something that's sacred to them in their life. Everyone has something that's holy to them, whether we talk like that or not. Whether that's a boyfriend or girlfriend that you sacrifice for, that you allow them to cross whatever boundary that you set up. Or whether that's your parents, that you would do anything, anything, as so long as to not lose their opinion of you for. You, you just want to please them so much. Whether that is your career, that you sacrifice time and friendships and everything else on the altar of success, everything has something that's sacred to them. But Peter says to make Jesus Christ holy. We all do it. We all have things in life that we set apart that get more attention than anything else. But can I tell you the truth? Like, only one thing in life is holy. It wasn't the idea that Jesus needed to become holy. It wasn't the idea that Jesus isn't holy and then, and then as you sanctify him in your hearts, he, he certainly he becomes holy. Like Peter says, no, you, Christians, you need to make him holy in your life. Only one person is holy. Only one person can fulfill you. Only one person can make you holy, has suffered to bring you to God. In the words of Peter before the Sanhedrin, there is no other name given under heaven by which mankind must be saved. And that name is Jesus Christ. In your hearts, revere Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense for the hope that is in you to anyone who asks. Can I ask, do you know the reason for the hope that is in you? Because it begins with this idea of making Jesus holy and then living in such a way where people see hope. Living in such a way where when people look at you, they say, that person is different. That person is unshakable. That person has a hope that's founded on something that's different than what the the world hopes in. They're not hoping in friendships. They're not hoping and chasing what everyone else in the world is. Do you have a hope that's set on things above? And do you know the reasons for your hope that you could tell someone else? See, I've got a friend a young adult friend in my life uh, who was sharing, he was telling me about how he came to Christ. Um, He came to Christ, I think, uh, around the age of 23. And it's kind of a fun story. Like, it wasn't intellectual arguments for him. It wasn't someone um, witnessing the gospel for him. It wasn't someone opening the text and saying, here's Christ, here's the miracles, like, can you see it? And he said, wow, I see it, and let me be baptized. No, for him, he was at a funeral. And while he was at this funeral, he saw a Christian couple who had just lost their only son. 
But something about the way they mourned, it wasn't the fact that they were not mourning. He was telling me this. He's like, they were sad. I, I know they were sad. But the way they grieved showed me that they were unshakable. Like I would have been shaken in their situation. But I could see their hope even in their darkest moment. And I knew that they had something that I didn't have. They had hope. And I could see that. And then he went and found out the message of Christianity on his own. And the people at that funeral did not even know. Like, that's the crazy thing. When you live your life in such a way that shows people the hope, you witness to Christ. Those people did not have anything to do with his conversion, but they had everything to do with it. In a sense, it wasn't about him. They were just living out the hope that they had in Christ. Do you have hope? Do you know the reasons for your hope? What are yours? Are yours intellectual and rational? Do you see the beauty and the mystery of the resurrection, this gaping hole in the middle of all of history that the wildest, the wildest theories can be crafted around, but they still can't answer what happened on AD 33, that first Easter. Are they intellectual reasons for your hope? Are they personal do you, in the words of First Peter, say that my life, God has brought me from darkness into life. I have seen God bring me to a place that was out. He brought me out of some dark places and He walks me through so much. And now He grows in me love and joy and peace and patience that I know that I could not do on my own. Are they personal? What are your reasons for hope? I hope that you know. Mine are a little bit of both. You gotta walk through some rational ones. You gotta know that you're founded in truth, but I think when it comes down to it, I think I just can say that I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And I can't go away. He's true, and I've experienced Him. I pray that you guys know the hope that is found in Christ Jesus. Because that's what Peter's calling you to. To live out your hope in such a way that shows that Christ Jesus is holy to you. He's sanctified to you. Some of you need to step forward and share that hope with people that are closest to you. I know it's scary. I know you fear relationships. I know you fear what people will do as you say, I believe you need Christ. I believe Christ can fulfill you. I believe Christ can call you to places that you can't even imagine. I know that's scary, guys. But if I can say to you the words of 1 Peter, do not, be, do not fear them or be intimidated, but revere Christ the Lord as holy. Some of you have heard this message and have not fully given yourself to the Lord, have not fully taken that step of faith. And if I could encourage you, if you have not given your life to Christ, 
if you have given your life to Christ, but if you've not taken that step in baptism, please talk to someone. Please talk to, it could be us, it could be ministers, it could be a close friend, but please don't let tonight just sit where it is. Please take steps. I know it can be scary, but we are your community in Christ and we are meant to build each other up. This is our job. And then, whatever Peter means in 1 Peter 3, about that phrase in baptism, will be true of you as well. And we will celebrate at that baptism on Sunday. And every person in this room, no matter where you are, I pray that you would know the reason for the hope that is in you. That Christ, who descended to the dead and was made alive in the Spirit, who has gone into heaven and is seated at the right hand with the angels and authorities and powers, I pray that you know the reason for your hope and that you can walk in that. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, even if it is confusing and mysterious, God. I, I just I praise you that we can't master your word, but your word still speaks to us through it. God, I pray that as they go from here, that your words sit with them. I pray that it spurs us into action, that we are not just Christians and just people that hear your words and they fall on deaf ears, but God, we hear and we respond. Lord, I pray that for those that need to hear hope, that they would know how much hope they have in you, that our faith is not a house of cards, that our faith is as unshakable as the tomb is empty. God, for others, I pray that if they need boldness, Lord, that you would give them a boldness that stems from them revering you as holy. God, I pray that their life would shine with the hope that they have in you and that people would know a difference. God, for all of us, I pray that your spirit empowers us and that we look more and more like you. I love you, Jesus. Thank you for this time. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.